Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 166. What are all the different versions of Python? You may have heard of Cython, Brython, PyPy, or others, and wondered where they fit into the Python landscape. This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Christopher shares an article from the Bytecode blog about all the different forms that Python can take. CPython is the reference implementation of the language we usually discuss. He lists several alternative projects and their use cases. We also discuss a recent RealPython article about IPython. IPython is an interactive Python shell from the team that developed Jupyter Notebooks. It includes a set of IDE-like features and unique magic commands. The article digs into using the tool to learn more about Python and explore your code. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including several news updates, the state of WASI support in CPython, how Python uses garbage collection, a discussion about the current AI echo chamber, an asynchronous Python micro web framework, a standalone CSV editor, and a project for identifying unused dependencies to avoid a bloated virtual environment. This episode is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is Python monitoring for swift issue resolution, pinpoint bottlenecks in your code, and optimize performance. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back to the show. Always glad to be here. So we're going to start off with a couple pieces of news. In fact, I have a, a an article that I'm going to kind of turn into a piece of news. But what did you want to start with? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the first little bit is something that's kind of becoming a regular thing on the show. Uh, Python 312 beta. All right. It's beta 4 this time. Uh, October is sneaking up on us quickly. In fact, the first release candidate is planned for July 31st. So just a few days after this goes to air. Wow. So we're... St- we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the second piece of news is a little bit of shameless self-promotion. I'm in the process of writing a book called Django in Action with Manning Publishing. And it's now entered the early access phase, which means the first five chapters are available online. And here's my late night sales pitch. Uh, if you buy the early <laughs> access copy, uh, you get the new chapters as they're released and you get access to the forum where you can ask questions and give me valuable feedback, helping me make the book better for everybody. Awesome. And as the title Django in Action implies, it's about learning Django. It's targeted at folks who already know Python and want to figure out how to get their skills to the web. Throughout the book, you work on a single project as an example, and you get to see how a real site is built rather than just bits and pieces. And each chapter includes exercises so you can test your learning. And all the sample code and exercise answers and stuff are available on GitHub. 
So just to complete my late night infomercial, if you buy before August 15th, you get 45% off using promo code Django45. That's Django, all small letters, and the number four and five. There'll be a link in the show notes. Sweet. So thank you for taking up your ear time with my commercial. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'm excited. Uh, it's something you've been working on for a little while here. So I'm excited to see the early access part of it here. It's it's a slog, but uh, initial reviews are relatively positive. So uh, it's always nice to know that the work you're putting in is uh, appreciated by some folks. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more from other people to make it even better. Yeah. So my first sort of article slash piece of news, the reason I'm kind of lumping it in here, it's a, a piece by Brett Cannon. And Brett's been on the show several times. In fact, one of his most recent times, we talked a lot about WASI, the WebAssembly systems interface, WebAssembly itself, WASM. And the article's titled The State of WASI Support for CPython and then colon June 2023. So this is probably going to be like an ongoing thing. If you're not aware, Brett is very deeply involved in making sure that WASI is a supported platform for CPython to be developed for. He's actually kind of the person in charge of monitoring uh, the tier three platform, you know, status of it. And uh, we discussed that in length. And when I had him on the show, I'll include a link and you can learn more from there if you want to learn a little bit about it. But I'm interested in just what's happening with WebAssembly. And so this is like, almost like a set of links that he's created a narrative around to give you an idea like, okay, if you'd like to learn more about this or learn more about that, you can kind of dig into. So he's publishing unofficial builds for Python 3.11 and 3.12 using two different SDKs. He has links for all of that stuff. He's cleaned up the CPython WASM notes on building for WASI, and it basically includes a link to GitHub with lots of technical goodness. So you can kind of see what's going on with that whole process of building for WASI and what what's involved with that. He mentions that he gets to work on this stuff because he's adding VS Code WebAssembly support. And if you're not familiar, he's involved with the Python experience um, for Microsoft there. And VS Code's a big part of that. He has a bunch of more dev details to kind of dig into. And he briefly mentions that the WebAssembly Summit that we also talked about that happened at PyCon US went over okay. And one of the things that as a result of that is that there's a GitHub repo for WebAssembly stuff, sort of a Python WASM awesome list that you can kind of check out, find more resources for that. And then I think there was actually a mention on his Mastodon account. This is recently, if you follow him, you might have seen a similar summit that's happening right now at EuroPython. I'm not clear on that. If I can find the link again, I, I will put that in there too. He's definitely meeting with people and trying to keep building toward that. He became a member of, what was it called, the Bytecode Alliance and doing uh, stuff with them and meeting with them. And then he talks about the future. He has a goal for the WASI support to actually get to Tier 2, which actually requires a build bot for CPython. It's going to take a little bit and might require the support from the Python Steering Council to do that. So he's going to present that to them. And then he's also talking about maybe doing a WASI build of CPython in VS Code. It's a little early uh, as far as that development goes. And then what that would do is allow extensions that can run in the browser for the VS Code version that runs in the browser. And 
generally it's just sort of a, you know, hey, watch this space sort of article, what's going on with it. And so I kind of wanted to lump it a little bit into news, but it's a little more detailed than a single news item. So yeah, if you want to catch up on what's happening with Wasm and Wazi and see Python's support for it, I'm very interested in this idea, this idea of the delivery of it. The We talked a lot about how you have to have a runtime version for all the different destinations that re, where you would run your program. But it seems like it's really moving quickly as a potential delivery platform for people's projects and tools and stuff like that. So I definitely want to keep my tabs on it. So I'll mention it in the future. I can't wait for the day that I never have to write JavaScript ever again. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it just compile and be done. <laughs> uh, what's your first one here? I've got an article from Bytecode here. We've covered a couple of their topics in the past. I think the last time you talked about it, you mentioned the byline, nobody has time for Python, and we were kind of talking as if that was the username. Yeah. That name is gone. Oh, it is. <laughs> uh, it, well, the, so it's still there as a slogan on the article, but it's not in the headers anymore, so it's not acting as the byline. So huh. I'm not sure who we're supposed to give credit to, so it's just yeah. plain bytecode from here on yeah, in. Yeah, spelled with B-I-T-E, um, like take a bite out of code. Yeah. rather than like a computer, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, so uh, it's another good article from them, whoever they are. This one's called, What's the Deal with CPython, PyPy, MicroPython, Jython, dot, dot, dot. Okay. And the topic is a summary of all the different flavors of Python out there and why you might use them. So let me just read the intro to give you the idea. When people say Python, they usually mean CPython, the reference Python implementation. But there are others. Oh, so many others. <laughs> And the article goes on to list over a dozen different Python variants, as well as another half dozen other tools that kind of overlap in this space. So for each of these many variants, the article goes on to explain how the variant fits into the ecosystem, why you might use it. And, you know, the big, the big elephant besides CPython would be PyPy. The article starts with that, and it talks about the just-in-time compiler and the fact that it's slower to start up, but typically faster once it gets going, and touches on the fact that it's only compatible at the language level, so you can some C extensions don't work, and so you get these kind of pros and cons as to why you might use PyPy. Then the next section in the article talks about these things that aren't quite Python interpreters, but are in a related space. So, for example, PyoDide, which is WebAssembly. Yeah. At which you were just talking about, uh, and as well as uh, Python compilers such as Cython and Numba. If you're new to this world, it's a great intro to all the choices that are out there. If you're deep in this world, you might still find something in here you haven't come across before. For me, this was Nootka. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's a transpiler that creates C from Python, but then it links with libpython, so it's still Python compatible. So usually with these kinds of transpilation kind of situations, you lose some of the power of the language. But in this case, you actually end up with an executable that is built on top of the actual libpython. So you get a lot of the speed, but you don't lose the Python-esque things. And from what I can read, it looks like it's still fully compatible with all the C extensions as well because it's using that same interface. So this one's going on my to-do list to check out. So uh, even for somebody who knows a bunch of stuff, there's some interesting little surprises in this article that might be worth clicking on some links. 
Yeah, it's nice because there are so many of these that kind of get mentioned in passing. And if you aren't familiar with what all these different names are and what they're doing and, you know, where they might be used, uh, this is a good survey of all that. And unfortunately, they have confusing names, right? Sure. Like you've, you've got <laughs> Pi, 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 Pi this, Pi that. It, it's just, yeah, okay, yeah. trying to keep it all straight. It's and not, do I pronounce not, it not the easiest. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And then, you know, the idea of like all these interesting like JITs, just-in-time compilers and other fun toys and where you might want to use them. Dealing with performance issues can be a real pain for developers. They not only affect the user experience, but also lead to frustration and wasted time. However, there's a powerful solution that can make this process much smoother and more efficient. Scout's APM tool. With Scout, you can pinpoint performance and stability issues in Python applications with ease. Scout's tracing logic detects the exact line of code, causing the performance abnormality, fixing the issue before customers ever notice. Start your 14-day free trial now at scoutapm.com. That's S-C-O-U-T-A-P-M dot com. My next one is is a real Python tutorial, and it's by one of our newest tutorial writers there, uh, Vincent Matinde. I want to congratulate him on his first tutorial for Real Python. It's titled Unlock IPython's Magical Toolbox for Your Coding Journey. A few months ago, I think it was, we talked about an interactive REPL replacement, BPython. I think that was something that you covered, Chris. The interactive REPL is something where you're going to be, you know, writing and sort of exploring Python code and so forth. If you are in the data science world, you might have heard of this one called IPython. In fact, it comes installed if you've installed Jupyter Notebook or you have an Anaconda distribution. The way you could find out is you could open up a terminal prompt and instead of typing Python and getting that standard three-carat looking little prompt where you can start typing your Python code and trying things out, it would actually show the word in and then a pair of square brackets and a number the way you might be familiar with looking at Jupyter Notebooks in the cells that you see there. So it would say in one and colon, and then you would start typing your prompt. It comes from the same people who worked and created Jupyter. A couple quick things that I want to cover is that it has the same kind of features and REPL replacement tools of like intelligent indentation. So if you're, say, defining a function, it will auto-indent for you. It has code completion. So if you press tab, it will offer a set of selections. So a lot of that probably would look familiar to somebody using an IDE, but you might not have been used to that when you're working in just a standard Python REPL Something unique that is a feature that Gerarna mentioned to me, and this was way back in episode number one, you can actually put a statement inside of a Python script that you're writing. It would actually be ipython.embed and a pair of parentheses to call that. When you run that script, what it will do is open up an ipython session once the execution has hit that particular line, kind of like debugging, if you will, and what will happen then is you get this now REPL experience with all of your code already kind of run and defined. And so you can inspect the variables you created, the objects, the state of the code. And it allows you to do a bunch of kind of troubleshooting stuff that is unique. And I hadn't really played with it much. I know Gary and Arna had mentioned it to me uh, way back then, but this was my chance to kind of play with it. So he talks about that in the article. And uh, I think it's a very useful way of, again, playing around in there. 
there's also the dash i command line argument, which does the same thing. So you can run Python dash i, then your script, and it'll run your script and then drop you into the REPL once it's completed. So it does the same thing without actually having to uh, change your code. Yeah, so you don't have to like write it into the code. I guess that feature would be more uh, if you want it to open up at a very specific point. Yeah, that it, yeah, it, it's uh, putting the other feature in is kind of like using the the breakpoint function, right, to to kick off the debugger. If you're fine with running it and then just leaving the end space and then opening up the REPL afterwards, then you can use dash i as well. Yeah, thanks for catching that. What the majority of the article gets into is talking about this really powerful feature of IPython that is unique to it. It's called magic commands, and magic commands are something that the standard Python shell doesn't have. And it you can do kind of Unix-type shell commands, things that you might be familiar with, like find the current working directory or change directory and things that if you're dealing with lots of files and moving things in and out, this is a great way to kind of manage that. The way to access them is to use the percent sign. And then in the case of the working directory, you type percent PWD. If you want to change the current working directory, you can do percent CD to do standard sort of change directory. But you can also bookmark them, which is kind of interesting. So you can bookmark these locations that you want to go to and then recall them. So it talks about that. You can load your Python script in with percent load command, which is pretty neat. And then it has a lot of introspection kind of tools that you can do to dive into stuff. So you can type question mark after any object. And something like a function, it'll bring up the full doc string, you know, along with its signature, the arguments it accepts, the returns, um, the type that it is. And it also has a feature for code history right there within this shell. And then a couple features for saving your whole session, kind of like a way to come back and try things out and, you know, being able to recall that stuff. And if you're interested in Diving a little deeper, it has a, this whole article comes with a PDF cheat sheet, which I love cheat sheets and it's great. And so you can download that. If you're interested in alternative REPLs, IPython is definitely a unique set of features. I didn't talk about it much, but that numbering, the one, two, three, four is something that you can then use as far as that introspection also to look at what you've input and then what it's output along with the numbers to kind of indicate what's happening, which is very handy. I want to say nice work, Vincent. Good job on your first tutorial for real Python. Do you use bpython or what, what's your main alternative REPL? I still only use the old REPL. Okay. Uh, it's one of those things like every six months I go and I read these things. I'm like, I really should be using one of these. And I've just never gotten around okay. to doing it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what's your next one? My next one is called How Python Uses Garbage Collection for Efficient Memory Management, and it's by Karishma Shukla. Uh, titles like that can be a little scary. This isn't so much about core internals of CPython as it is about how your programs use memory and what information you can look at from within your code. So the article is sort of a sweet spot for somebody who knows enough Python already and maybe is thinking of understanding a bit more, but this isn't like going down that very, very dark well of interpreters and compilers. So Karishma starts out with an intro to the idea of object references, which when you're being pedantically correct is what Python has instead of variables. And each object you create contains the contents of the object, its value, as well as some meta information, such as its type and how many times it's been referenced. And that last part's called the reference count. 
This count is important. It's how the Python interpreter knows whether or not it can free up the memory associated with your object. If you point other references to the object, the count goes up. And as those references go out of scope, say your function returns, then the count goes down. If the count hits zero, the object can be freed. The article goes through how and where different references might occur and then dives deeper into the memory freeing process that I just spoke about, which is called garbage collection. The C types module in Python actually gives you information on an object's reference count. And the article has some sample code that shows you just how to do that. It's not a simple thing. It's like a four dot deep thing, but you can get at it. And of course, things are never quite as easy as you want them to be. (laughs) There's also the chance of there being cycles amongst your object references. Let's say I had a list called X. I can append that list into that list. So my list references itself. Yeah. And that might sound like a strange thing to do, but with certain kinds of data structures, it's actually important. So if you're doing arbitrary nodes in a graph, this kind of thing pops up. And so there's a brief explanation on how the garbage collector deals with this situation. And then the article goes on to show you how you can turn the garbage collector off in case you feel like shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, and there can be some speed advantages to doing this. And But of course, it's at the cost of memory. So generally, it isn't recommended, but there are some edge cases. And if you want to play around, it shows you how to do that. So this is Karishma's second article in a few weeks. So here's hoping that there's some more good content from them to come. Nice. It's always uh, nice to have um, a kind of a quick review of these kind of technical concepts that you can absorb without having to dive into a whole chapter of a book. Uh, yes. And as a curator of a newsletter, I'm always happy to see people popping up and regularly giving content that's valuable because uh, sometimes <laughs> that can be hard to find. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. keep at it, Karishma. <laughs> This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It takes you through a detailed hands-on project designed to exercise and expand your Python skills by practicing object-oriented programming and several other best practices. In fact, this course is broken up into two parts. It's titled Mazes in Python. Part one is building and visualizing, and the recently published part two is about storing and solving the mazes. It's based on a RealPython step-by-step project by Bartosz Jaczynski, and the video course is presented by Darren Jones. And along the way, you'll learn how to use an object-oriented approach to represent the maze in memory, define a specialized binary file format to store the mazes on disk. You'll learn how to transform the maze into a traversable weighted graph. You'll use graph search algorithms in the Network X library to find the solution. And you'll visualize the maze and its solution using scalable vector graphics. I think this course is a great way to hone your Python skills and develop some new ones along the way while building an interesting project. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, each of the parts of the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Each lesson includes a transcript, including closed captions, and you'll have access to code samples for the techniques shown. Check out these video courses. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find them using the search tool on realpython.com. That case takes us pretty quickly into our discussion this week. So this one is from Hacker News, and you had found this, and I think we're going to probably create our own big list of links to kind of add more further reading uh, in it. The initial Hacker News post was, Are People in Tech Inside an AI Echo Chamber? 
And this will be our shortest discussion ever as we both say yes and move on. <laughs> and, and, but I want to like document why we're saying yes <laughs> with uh, a bunch of other pieces of reading or things that I've kind of run across recently. I'll, I'll read a uh, freelance dev. Their post said, I recently spoke with a friend who's not in the tech space and he hadn't even heard of chat GPT. He's a millennial and a white collar worker and smart. I have had conversations with non-tech people about chat GPT and AI, but not very frequently, which led me to think, are we just in an echo chamber? Not that this would be a bad thing, as we're all quite aware that AI will play an increasing role in our lives, in and out of the office, but maybe AI mainstream adoption will take longer than we anticipate. What do you think? And unfortunately, it went down <laughs> a bunch of sort of comparison areas. A lot of people dived into trying to compare crypto and AI. And I've heard a lot of pundits talk about how AI, as far as like this generic term of it, is being like the, the new crypto as far as like investment and where all these people are kind of pushing their money, but also pushing their influence. And that's why maybe it feels like such a big bubble that a lot of us are inside of or, or a lot of echoing. I have to say, I've always kind of stayed on the outside the door of the echo chamber, listening in <laughs> and paying attention, but not really getting too involved as most people have uh, you know, probably figured out from the show. Uh, I don't really talk about those topics that much, but I thought, you know, hey, at least I can kind of share some of the stuff that I've been hearing lately. So were there some points that you wanted to pull out of some of the notes there outside of uh, the firm yes that you were providing earlier, Christopher? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really hard topic. Yeah. Uh, I, did, I did some coding in this in the 90s. Okay. And the AI experience itself is cyclical. And so uh, when I when I first got into the space in the 90s, we were on a on the downside of a slope. So in the late 80s and early 90s, there was an awful lot of this is going to solve all these problems. And then they hit the limit of the algorithms that they had. Sure. And there's been a couple sort of cycles since then. But what has really shown up in the last few years is because of the increase in uh, processing power, and the availability of things like the cloud, and you can just throw thousands and thousands of machines at things. Right. The same algorithms that used to be limited by the processors now can be used in new ways because we can now throw more bandwidth and, and hardware at it. Yeah. And so uh, inevitably what's going to happen is we are going to find the limit of what this hardware can do. That limit may or may not be where everyone's... Pre- predicting it to be, and then we'll come down the other side of this mountain again yeah. is really what it comes down to, right? Well, I feel like one of the things that I wanted to kind of define, just kind of, sorry to interrupt you, just the... No, go ahead. There's this overarching umbrella of the terminology of things that are quote-unquote artificial intelligence. And I feel like I wish it would that would be where we stay is like this is within this sort of quote-unquote field of artificial intelligence things. But when it becomes like the the noun that this is an AI, you know, it's like, well, no, it isn't. It, it's either doing large language models or it's doing, you know, machine learning or whatever. But it, it becomes like this weird shorthand that is, I feel like, getting so overused that's part of the echo chamber that's kind of bu bugging me right now yeah is like well what what are you describing are you describing the way that it's you know doing text-to-speech or vice versa or 
just, you know, generating images or, you know, generating text and, you know, acting as a chat kind of thing or duplicating stuff. And so that's one of my minor complaints that I have of just like overall labeling that kind of gets into the, the AI like hype. Yeah, no, and, and I was actually just about to say something very, very similar, right? Like the, the term means everything. Like we, we use it when we're talking about video games, as in the, the non-player character has AI. Right. And oftentimes that's a simple graph traversal algorithm. And then you've got the other end of it, which is Star Trek-like sentience of, you know, commander data, right? right? right yeah. um, and, and the problem is the, the people in the industry don't tend to use the term. They usually use more precise terms. But the problem is the press is now onto it. And of course, you, you saw article after article after article of, you know, <laughs> yes. reporters asking chat GPT, will you take over the world? Or, you know, will you put journalists out of work or whatever? Uh, and it became news for a while. And of course, the general public, as soon as you see AI, they're thinking commander data. Right. And the reality of it is, What's not uh, you know, it might, it, it's not that. And we're not, we're not even close to that. You know, there was a uh, a bet between a uh, neurobiologist and a software sort of AI person 25 years ago as to whether or not we would understand human consciousness at this point. And the bet just closed uh, like a few weeks back. And the neurobiologist who essentially said, we're not going to understand Jack one because uh, we still we still don't understand how the human brain works like we've got ideas about the neurons and the rest of it but we're constantly changing the definition of conscious as we learn more and more about the animal kingdom uh, so the fact that we can't even keep a solid label on that makes it really really difficult to turn around and say but okay and now our computer is going to do that right so it's much better to talk about things like you know well this this is a k-means algorithm this is machine learning this is right you know, vision, whatever it is, as an application rather than these generic terms. One of the things I wanted to mention that I've run across recently that I, I think is good information kind of doesn't necessarily get looked at often is an article that was on The Verge by John Deziza. And I think it was a, also reprinted in the New York Magazine. It's like a collaboration between them. And it has some really amazing artwork in it, actually. <laughs> I like by uh, Richard Perry, from, who's from The Verge also, that dives into this a little bit. But their title is AI is a lot of work. And the subtitle is, as technology becomes ubiquitous, a vast tasker underclass is emerging and not going anywhere. A lot of people think that when AI is trained on an image set, that this machine learning is just the machine, if you will, looking at a database of images and doing like classification by itself. But unfortunately, there's another step or multiple steps that are in there where there are actually human beings drawing outlines around things to say, this is the cat <laughs> and this is, you know, whatever. And there are people that are paid very, very low wages to go in and do that super detailed identification of things. And the article does a really great job of taking you through that whole journey and the amount of work that's involved. And one of the people decided, well, I'm going to try to do that job for a little bit. And <laughs> there's a couple of just short paragraphs I want to read from it. One is about this sort of change of how we move from craftsmen to industrial manufacturing. And it says he reached back farther for a comparison, a digital version of the transition from craftsmen to industrial manufacturing 
coherent processes broken into tasks, arrayed along assembly lines, with some steps that were being done by machines and then some by humans, but none resembling what came before. And that truly is kind of what's happening here too. Like there, there are lots of things that are getting automated along the process, but there's a lot of steering that's happening by humans that's still in that process. And I feel like that is completely obscured or at least like people don't want you to know that this is actually happening. They want to decide, oh, the machines are doing all of it. And it's like, no, actually there's a huge amount of it happening for humans. And they take you into, you know, images, they take you into training the driving systems to identify what are you looking at. And he talked about taking the job on. And one of the other lines is that now I received a 43-page set of directives. Do not label open suitcases full of clothes. Do label shoes, but do not label flippers. Do label leggings, but do not label tights. Do not label towels, even if someone is wearing it. That's not clothes. <laughs> label costumes, but don't label armor. <laughs> so it's like this whole like set of crazy systems that are identifying it. Like he talked about how he got bad points because you know somebody's you know grading his work because he didn't identify that there were clothes that were actually as a mirror image, like something that was you know in a mirror that somebody was wearing those clothes, that he should have been identifying that too. And so like all these things that the machine's not going to figure out this stuff on its own. So we have to actually train it to this detail level. And really the only person that can do that right now is a human. <laughs> it requires a lot of human input. And I just feel like it's something that's been neglected so much in all of this. Yeah, that, that, that there's a couple things going on here, right? So that there's generally sort of two classifications of AI. One is supervised learning and the other is unsupervised learning. Yeah. And what you're describing is supervised learning. And if you want knowledge in the system, you want the fact that that thing is named in English a cat, someone has to put that knowledge into the system. Right. Uh, so whether that's the programmer or whether, like you're describing, that's a room full of people who are helping train it, that has to be there. Unsupervised learning generally is better at looking for patterns and not labeling things. As in, these two things happen frequently together. The classic example of this is uh, somebody once discovered that if you're buying diapers at 3 a.m., you're probably likely to want to buy beer as well. So put those in the same row of the grocery store and you'll sell more beer. So those kinds of patterns you can get out of unsupervised learning. But a lot of the language stuff that we're talking about, that requires the information put in. And there is this there is this concern that as more and more AI is starting to be used to write articles on the web, that that will start to become the training data for the future algorithms. And uh, you've got this sort of gray goo problem, right? And right. I don't know about you, but uh, I, it's hard to know. Most of the articles that I'm sure have been AI uh, written are obviously so. They're not up to quality of what we normally say even accept in the newsletter. Right. Obviously, if there's some out there that are so good, I'm not detecting it, then I wouldn't know. But if you start training the AI on that stuff that isn't very good, you're going to be reinforcing the parts of it that aren't very good. And we could end up just flooding the net with garbage. I guess that's flooding the garbage with more garbage, whatever. <laughs> I, 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 right. But it, it could it could become this, uh, you know... A, a, and and then it's quite possible that the the thing that replaces Google will be somebody who comes up with an algorithm that 
essentially treats that stuff as if it's spam and ignores it and it stops showing up in our search. Yeah. And so I, I just want to kind of build on top of that. There's this recent study, and you can take it with a grain of salt, but this is an article from Ars Technica. Is chat GPT getting worse over time? Study claims yes, but others aren't sure. Study is from... Stanford University and University of California, Berkeley. They have a research paper, and there's a link for that, too. They were looking at a question of prime numbers, and GPT-4, as far as the accuracy, was dropping dramatically between March and June, whereas actually GPT-3.5 was getting better, which is interesting. And then other similar kind of weird kind of classification, visual reasoning. So it's interesting to think that these models... You would hope that they would just improve, but there is the potential that depending on the type of things that you're feeding into it, that they, the quality could drop. <laughs> it's just, again, like one of these kind of spaces where I, I want to like insert some more objectivity to it. It's a challenge in the industry generally, right? Like yeah. I know a few people who consult in this space and uh, most of them have told me some variation or several variations on the same story, which is they go into somewhere that has this huge AI algorithm they, and it's not behaving correctly or it's not as accurate as they want or whatever. And they look at it and go, yeah, this is great, but um, I can replace all of this with a regex and it'll be faster and <laughs> and more accurate, right? Um, so some of it is, and, that, and that's not me knocking, I'm not saying these techniques aren't valuable. There are places where they are. Right. But because of the hype, what tends to happen is people are jumping to the solution, right? And, and there was an uh, academic article that came out a couple of weeks back talking about the fact that they took a few dozen lines of Python, a k-means test, and applied it against an algorithm that was using a distributed neural network model, and they kicked its butt, right? So like, there was this fancy model with all this testing and all this memory and all this hardware, and they basically went, here's 14 lines of program and gzip, and we can do better, right? So this is something that's still actively being researched and there are so many algorithms out there that you can get into a place where, unless you're an expert in the space, you're going to pick the one that seems most natural. And you may end up in a low minimum that you can't get out of that doesn't actually solve the problem that you want because that's the alley you went down. Yeah. And I guess part of the whole echo chamber part of it is the investment that's happening. And of course, yep, money, all the money. Right. And, the, you know, the pivot of a lot of this crypto investor stuff is moving toward AI from what you hear as reports. I don't know. It's an interesting time. I, one of the comments in the uh, in the Hacker News discussion, somebody named Blitz Skull said, uh, the era of having a personal voice assistant is very close. And uh, user Afraver responded, the year of the voice assistant is getting close to the year of Linux on the desktop. We keep hearing it and it never keeps arriving, right? And, and so this is, again, that sign of the the hype cycle, right? The, oh yeah, the, this is great. And then we figure out what the limitations of what it actually is. And I, and that's one of the other things. I remember having a conversation with the prof that I took some of the AI stuff from back, uh, way, way back in the days. And one of his complaints was they come up with a new algorithm. That new algorithm is considered AI because of the problems they're attacking. And if the algorithm is really successful, it just becomes an algorithm and it gets pulled away from AI and it's no longer called AI anymore. So even even within people in the industry, the definition of what's there is 
is this amorphous thing, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I, I know, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of both old men and you can read that for what it is. So this could be the, you know, us having the wisdom of having lived through a few other hype cycles or it could just be because uh, yeah. why would I want this? And we'll both get replaced by younger, more capable prompt engineers at some point. So, <laughs> no. Well, let's get into projects. I have two, actually, I wanted to cover this week. One I mentioned briefly, I don't know, it's a few weeks ago, I mentioned in reference to an article about Flask, a framework called Quart that is from the Palettes Project also. So again, the Palettes Project, those are the people that brought you Flask, Jinja 2, Click, It's Dangerous, and a variety of other kinds of tools that are in the Python ecosystem there. And Quart is like Flask, but it's an async Python web micro framework. Things you can do, you can render and serve HTML pages, you can write RESTful JSON APIs with it, you can serve WebSockets, stream request and response data, and pretty much do anything that you'd want to do over the HTTP or WebSocket protocols with Quart, and it would be async. Um, it does require 3.8, Python 3.8 and up, I was really impressed with the documentation for this project. It's really well done. And one of the nice things it has is guides. So it has step-by-step guides on building a RESTful API with it, building a simple blog with it, or doing things like building a basic chat server or how to serve video using it. And then also some resources for deploying Quart itself. So um, how you can kind of get it up, stand it up and deploy it. There are a handful of guides for migrating from Flask. So if you already have a Flask project, but you're interested in the async features of Quart, it has some guides there. How to use Flask extensions with it, how blueprints work in it, how templates work in it, and then testing the system. So again, really nice documentation on the project. If you're interested in async and like sort of the functionality of Flask, this is a, a neat kind of solution there. And the other one is something I just happened upon on Mastodon recently. Somebody was mentioning that they were looking for a tool to read CSV, you know, maybe not have to open up Excel or uh, other tools to just look at CSV or do some really simple edits in it. And it's a piece of software called Modern CSV. It is free for the majority of like features you want to just get open and start working with it. You can pay to unlock some more powerful features in it, but the free version includes just the ability to drag and drop CSV right into it. It opens up very quickly. There's a read-only mode that's even faster. It allows you to do multi-cell editing, uh, handles very large files. It has find and replace, sorting rows, sorting columns. Of course, you can customize it as far as themes and so forth. There's a pretty powerful command line sort of tool with it, or I guess kind of a command box where you can type out what you want to do in it. Uh, there's, it auto-detects the delimiters. You can freeze row or column headers. And that's all in the free version, which is pretty nice. And then, again, I think the pricing breaks out to like... $29 for like a personal version that unlocks a whole bunch more in it. So it's a neat tool if you're looking for just, you want to open up CSVs, do some basic edits with them, move things around, even just to look at the data. This is kind of a nice tool for that if that might come in handy. So modern CSV. What's your project this week? I've got one from Frederick Averbel and it's called Creosote. 
This is a dependency bloat detection tool. It takes a project dependency file like pyproject.toml or requirements.txt and then examines your virtual environment, mapping the stuff installed against the stuff used and spits out a message if it figures out that there's things that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, I tested it on a few different projects and for the most part, it worked pretty well. I often have both like a dev and production version of a requirements file. And so when I run it against the production file on my dev environment, it properly found all the dev bits that I've got kicking around like coverage and PudB and Selenium, that kind of good stuff which is things you don't want in production. So works reasonably. Uh, it did give me one false positive on one of my Django projects complaining that Django was unused, which I couldn't get to the bottom of. It worked fine on several others, so I'm not sure what the difference there was. So, you know, it's not quite perfect, but it's uh, definitely got some value here. The intent behind the tool is to use it as a pre-commit or part of like a GitHub action flow. So you can ensure that things that got factored out of the code actually got factored out of the install list. There's a little blurb in the readme about how Frederick was inspired to write the tool. He got a vulnerability report from Production Scan complaining about a library that wasn't even actually used anymore. So he wanted to get things to a place where that kind of stuff wouldn't get pushed up to production again. Nice. The tool knows how to parse pyproject.toml, variations for PDM, poetry, pipenv, knows how to read requirements.txt files, does not support setup.py, or I don't think I couldn't find it find support for setup.cfg either. The readme refers to those as legacy, so I suspect support isn't coming anytime soon for those. <laughs> but useful to make sure your deployments are clean and, and definitely worth checking out if it fits into the tool chain you're currently using. All right. Well, thanks for bringing all these articles and projects this week, Christopher. Happy to be here. All right. Talk to you soon. Cheers. And don't forget, take the stress out of development and start your journey towards a smoother, more efficient app experience. Try Scout now and witness the difference it makes in your development at scoutapm.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.